Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Justin, who are we talking to today? Today, we are speaking with Nicole Foss from The Automatic Earth. She was here in Vancouver in the beginning of February on her way out to Australia. And Nicole did a talk here in Vancouver to the general public, and she was here for a few days. And while she was here, we were able to sit down with her for a bit and talk about so many of the difficult challenges facing the global economy today. And we talked quite a bit about the housing bubble here in Canada and Australia, specifically tying it to Vancouver because that's where she was at at the time and that's where I'm at. And as she always does on her blog, she takes the biggest possible picture and distills it down into little pieces of information that you can actually understand. Nicole and the rest of the team at The Automatic Earth do such an incredible job with all of their writing and everything they've been doing for the last few years since they started the blog. And they've had the big picture exactly right. They were saying back in 2008 that we were headed for a major debt deflation, that because of all the debt that was in the economy, what was going to happen is there would be series of sovereign defaults and banks would stop lending because all consumers were overloading themselves with debt. And just last week, Seth, Greece defaulted on their debts. They successfully carried out a debt haircut. So the debt forgiveness that we were talking about back on episode number 33 of our podcast happened in a way. Wow. At the beginning of the year, we were talking with Mike Rupert and Charles Eisenstein about debt jubilee, concepts of debt jubilee, and it actually happened. About one-third of Greece's debt was cut down through some legal manipulation and some somewhat shady dealings that happened, and now they have uh, a bit more manageable debt to, to work with. And so it sets up quite a precedent moving on for other European nations that are feeling the boot of austerity just the same as Greece's, Portugal, Spain, Italy, all of these countries are starting to say, hey, if Greece can go to the debt barber and get their debt haircut, why can't we go to the debt barber? I first listened to Nicole Foss when you came down here to uh, visit one one time, Justin, and we sat on my couch and watched the Automatic Earth video, and I was just blown away by the message that she that she had. And I went so far as to show the video to my father, and he was he was just 
unbelieving he couldn't believe it but now with all the things going on in greece and all over europe and you know even in the united states uh, for a large part her message has become one that you just cannot ignore yeah and with that we'll let nicole take it from here Thanks for joining us today, Nicole, from Vancouver, British Columbia, where you are traveling on your continuing world tour on the way out to Hong Kong and Australia. I just wanted to start out in asking, have you been to Australia? Have you have you been to China before? No, I've never been to anywhere in Asia or uh, down under. But uh, this time I'm, I'm going to be spending a month on the mainland of Australia, a week in Tasmania, a month in New Zealand, and then going to Hong Kong on my way back and it's just completely taking off. I keep thinking pinch me, I must be dreaming I still don't entirely know how this happened but uh, but I'm very pleased that there's interest in such far-flung places. Do you have any expectations about these places when you're, you're going there? Have you read about them? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean Australia I do expect certain similarities with Canada. They're both in a, a very large property bubble the difference I think will be that in Canada there's no sense of limits, really. We've never hit any, not in living memory, if we ever really had to confront genuine limits. In Australia, they have because of the drought. So when you develop a sense of limits in one area, it's not that much of a stretch to extrapolate it to others. So I do think there's a lot more interest in the idea that we might be hitting limits in Australia than I've typically found in Canada. But it is always hard to see a bubble for what it is when you're in it. And so I also expect a certain amount of resistance and justification of why these sky-high property prices are are actually reasonable. That's, that's what happens every time. It's different here. We can justify these valuations this time. It's actually never different here, but, but I'm expecting them to trot out, in places anyway, to trot out arguments like that. Another similarity Canada and Australia have is a lot of the system has been propped up by demand from China. So the Chinese bubble has been feeding commodity demand, which is is definitely the business that both Canada and Australia are, are in the business of supplying. So that common hinge on, on Chinese demand, I think, is going to be something that will be in common and will be a major factor going forward as the Chinese bubble bursts. And you're here in Vancouver. You were here about a year ago. And are you noticing any differences in regards to the housing bubble or the economy or anything that stood out to you being back in Vancouver a year later? Well, I think the housing bubble is going over the edge now. What you what you get when a housing bubble bursts is not a, an immediate plummet in house prices. What you get is the liquidity goes out of the real estate market. So what you start to see is a lot more for sale signs. Instead of things flying out of estate agents' windows in a matter of a couple of days and sometimes for more, more than the people were asking, instead, things just stop selling. More and more things come on the market so people can pretend to themselves that 
property is still worth what it once was, but nobody's buying it. And really what something is worth is only ever what somebody's prepared to pay for it in the real world. So you get this overhang of inventory that builds up. We're at the beginning of that now. Over time, sellers will eventually come down to where the buyers are. And then you'll see this kind of lurching to lower and lower prices as sellers come down. But then the buyers realize that prices are falling. So they offer even less. And you get this ratcheting down over time. And it takes several years for property bubble to to really burst. And we're at the very beginning stage of that in Vancouver today. Well, we did see a property bubble in the United States just a couple of years ago, where the price of the property on those houses fell very rapidly. I and mean, it was only through a large government spending that we were able to kind of recover out of that a little bit. Are we going to see something similar to that in Canada, that rapid decline? You said slowly over a couple of years. Do we, are we not, not going to see the kind of crash that we saw in the United States? Well, in the United States, it didn't happen overnight either. It began at the end of 2005. And really, the, the rapid phase was once the, the uh, system had been unwinding for quite a while already. The end of 2005, beginning of 2006 is when we started to see the inventory build up in, in the States. And that was the early stage. What we saw more recently that was the more rapid phase was when you started to get all the interest rate readjustments on subprime lending and you started to get that inventory really weighing very, very heavily on the market and just tons of foreclosures, which of course pushed the price down even further, partly because when a house is foreclosed on, it's sitting empty, no one's looking after it, it may be stripped of its copper wire and that lowers the value of everything else around it. So in the States, and the housing bubble there is nowhere near finished bursting, by the way, but in the States, it's been underway for five or six years already. So it wasn't a particularly rapid process there either. And it still has many years to go to the downside. Now, it does depend to some extent on where you are. If you're in South Florida, then the decline has been much more rapid partly because the overvaluation was that much more extreme. And a lot of places in California as well have experienced quite significant falls. Detroit's already fallen about as far as it's possible to go. There are houses in Detroit you can get for free. You could probably buy up a whole block just for offering to pay a couple of back tax bills. So in some places, the fall has been more dramatic, sometimes as in the case of Florida, because the overvaluation was more dramatic. Other times, as in the case of Detroit, because all the industry left and they were well into the process of urban decay. So that could be just bottoming in Detroit already. Other places still have a very, very long way to fall because at the moment people can still get mortgages in the States because the public sector backstops mortgages. It backstops pretty much all of them. The private sector is getting out of the game. The Because the public sector is backstopping mortgages and providing supposedly ironclad public guarantees, of course, these won't prove to be ironclad at all, but because they're there, it's still propping up prices. That is what they're trying to do, to keep prices high. Now, price, high house prices are actually not in the interests of most people. And yes, they're in the interests of people who owe a lot of money on a property that would be underwater if house prices fell. But for prices to be ridiculously high actually just forces people into enormous amounts of debt. It forces people to take the debt slavery route. So for society as a whole, it is not a constructive or useful thing at all to prop up house prices. They really need to come down to somewhere sensible so that affordability is reasonable. Otherwise, you just price whole younger generation out of the market, for instance, and you force 
so many other people to take the road to debt slavery. And what that does is uses these people at the bottom of the financial food chain to prop up the global credit Ponzi. They are being victimized in the process of forcing them into to taking on debt in order to be able to exist at all. Now, I do think we'll see some attempts to prop things up in Canada, but because our housing bubble is only going over the edge now at the point where we're about to also see a major slide in terms of access to credit, I think our slide is likely to actually be faster than what has happened in, in the US because I think the circumstances of credit tightening are going to be significantly sharper. And once you deprive people of access to credit to buy properties, then you just undercut price support drastically because your pool of buyers ends up being people who can buy in cash. And that's a very small group of people because Chinese demand is falling over the edge as well now. And there's nothing the Canadian government can do to prop up Chinese demand for houses in Vancouver. Because the Chinese bubble is bursting, that's going to suck even more liquidity out of the property market. And that liquidity could go very quickly because that's pure speculative purchasing. These people from mainland China who don't even plan to live here are buying property because they feel it can only ever go up. That's the definition of a bubble. But that kind of demand is extremely ephemeral. I think that's going to disappear very abruptly. So when you undercut price support because you remove the major component of the demand and you remove people's ability to access credit, then the property price fall here could actually be really quite rapid. Yeah, and it's incredible to see the change over the last few months as China's stock markets have suffered so much and mainland China economies just suffered so much. But you see for sale signs just going up unbelievably. You know, in the last few weeks, I've seen for sale signs here in Vancouver go up dramatically. And like you were saying, it prices a whole generation out of the market. For the last decade or so, there's been a massive brain drain from Vancouver as people grow up, you know, maybe go to University of British Columbia and then say, I can't afford to live in this city. I'm getting out of here. And that's kind of stacked itself up. And the Canadian dynamics different from other countries because we have the CMHC here. Maybe you can explain a little bit about the CMHC and, and how that works, because I saw just recently they were reaching the limit of mortgages that they can back. Yes, well, CMHC, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, is is very much like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So what it is, is a public backstop on mortgages, which encourages the private sector to continue to make loans because there are backstops, there are guarantees. But I don't think those guarantees are going to be worth the paper they're written on. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the States are also absolutely loaded down with bad debt that they're meant to be guaranteeing. And just because there's a promise that this debt is guaranteed does not mean at all that that promise will be kept when push comes to shove. We are basically living in a giant tower of promises that cannot be kept on a whole range of fronts in terms of mortgage and loan guarantees, but also things like pension payouts and government benefits of all kinds. So I think many, many promises are going to be reneged on in, in the next few years. People are going to find that CDIC guarantees of their bank deposits aren't going to be worth anything either. This is going to cause a major, major problem when people's 
faith in promises is shaken to the core. That's exactly what's coming. When people realize they can't rely on these promises anymore, that's when you're a wily coyote, you've already run off the cliff, but you haven't looked down yet. And then all of a sudden you look down and that's when everything gets really dramatically different. And I'm not surprised you're starting to see forests of for sale signs. That's exactly how it starts. And we can expect to see that dynamic continue. What happens is you shift very rapidly, almost overnight into a buyer's market. And then instead of just simply throwing money at properties, often sight unseen, people will start to get very picky and they'll start to really look at what it is they're buying. And if it's not structurally sound, they will negotiate the price down or they'll insist that improvements will be made. What we saw in the States was people trying to shift houses by throwing in a free pickup truck if you buy the house. So the house appears to go for more money than it actually does because the seller is actually having to put up an enormous amount effectively of the purchasing price by having to do something like buying a free pickup truck to give to the buyer. You end up having to come up with a lot of incentives for buyers to choose your property as opposed to somebody else's when there's a lot more on the market. And that psychological shift is so rapid. And that's really what we're seeing. So the really rapid part is the liquidity goes out of the housing market very, very quickly. Then you're in a whole different ballgame. The longer term part is for prices to actually start to come down, for sellers to start to accept lower prices, and then you reprice whole neighborhoods. This is where you get the ratcheting down. I think it's going to be a relatively rapid process, but because you have this illiquidity feature that's always part of a housing market collapse, prices don't fall overnight. The liquidity goes overnight, but prices come down a little bit more slowly. So I am still expecting the bubble to take years to deflate, but once the process has begun, people can find themselves stuck because that whole shift from liquidity, extreme liquidity, in fact, to extreme illiquidity, that can happen almost overnight. It's fascinating how just people's mindsets can change a whole market. I mean, we see that in stocks as well. You know, people start buying and selling just as at the drop of a hat. A rumor goes around that this company is going down and everyone just sells off, sells off, sells off. And that sounds a little bit like what you're talking about, the housing market. I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about what's going to how, how this kind of collapse, not just in the housing market, but but economy wise would go in a say a Canada or United States. What are the steps that happen? And then what does it look like in a post collapse world? We had a, a mini collapse in 2008. Is it going to be looking similar to that? Is it, are we going to see high gas prices, people out of work? What, what, what can we look forward to? It's going to be worse than 2008 because we're going to see a lot more severe effect on in terms of credit crunch. So we're going to be looking at a much larger removal of credit from the system, which will undercut price support an awful lot more. One aspect of what we saw in 2008 was an enormous crescendoing of the oil price and then a crash. I think we are going to see another crash of energy prices, partly because this time Chinese demand is going to be falling. As the Chinese bubble bursts, China has been propping up commodity demand and therefore commodity prices for years. It's been a really, really major player. So as the bubble bursts there, we're going to see a large fall away in demand for commodities. And that's going to feed the falling demand from contracting economies in the developed world as well. So the way a commodity bubble bursts is you have in the, in the run-up, when, you, when you're having commodity prices being bid up, there's a perception of scarcity. People therefore bid up the price in advance of what the fundamentals would justify. So you, you get a bubble in commodities. We saw it in 2008. 
2008. We've seen it again more recently. And then when the shift comes, when that psychological shift comes from a perception of scarcity to that perception disappearing, people will take profits. They will short the sector. And then the prices fall very sharply. That's phase one of a commodity burst. What happens after that is demand starts to fall. So demand falling simply takes an awful lot longer than the psychological shift from perception of scarcity to no perception of scarcity. So the, the demand fall feeds into a price fall that was already underway. And that demand fall just continues undercutting price support. So I think we're actually going to see commodity prices come down a long way. Prices are, are going to be falling, unlike they were in earlier 2008. But we're not necessarily going to see things be cheap because if credit is going away and unemployment is going to be rising, just because prices come down does not make mean things are affordable because purchasing power falls faster than price. And that's going to be a major factor going forward. Not for everyone at the same rate. It depends how many people have lost their jobs. What happens is more and more people go over the edge. They fall off the back of the bus, if you like. They lose jobs. They hit a wall. They're maxed out. They can't borrow anymore. They can't keep up with the cost of living. What really is the driver is when a critical mass of people have fallen off the back of the bus. And then you really start to see demand falling very sharply. That's also when you get the perception that this new dynamic shift has has happened. When you only have some people falling off the back of the bus and enough people are still still employed, still being able to keep up with the payments, then you don't have this perception that things have changed and things are now going in a dangerous direction. It really takes reaching a critical mass. So you reach a kind of point of recognition that your trend has changed and then it will pick up momentum to the downside and it becomes more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So these are large swings of positive feedback in the early stages, they pick up momentum very slowly because there isn't a general perception that the trend has changed. The psychological shift is there, but it's subtle in the early stages. So you don't really get a pers- an initial perception, certainly a widespread initial perception that the trend has changed. Once you hit a kind of point of recognition or a critical mass, you do get that generalized perception that the trend has changed, and then it will feed on itself and pick up momentum to the downside. So I think we're going to see a worse impact than 2008 in a number of ways, much less credit, much more unemployment, more problems in in a, a larger number of parts of the world than we saw in 2008. So for instance, Canada wasn't really very badly affected at all in 2008. We only started to see problems about six months before the rally that began in early 2009. So we hardly experienced anything more than a vague dip, unlike places like the United States, for instance, that was in the grip of the subprime crisis at the time. The impact on them in 2008 was much more significant. We had a kind of glancing blow or a shot across the bow at most, and then everyone went back to sleep again almost immediately once once the rally began in March 2009. This time, I think Canada will be much harder hit. So we're looking at the fall-off in commodity demand. We're, we are a commodity economy as well as a manufacturing economy. The commodity demand from China will fall. The demand for our manufacturers from the States will fall. And they buy 80% of what we produce. And when that demand starts to go away for our manufacturers, we're going to find that we're very, very squeezed. I think that's going to push down the value of the Canadian dollar. So we're going to be finding that our our imports are, are more expensive and that there are going to be significant problems down the line for Canada, that they're going to be very much more significant, they're much 
harder to take than than we saw before. In 2008 was next to nothing. This is going to be the beginning of where we find out what a credit crunch really means. And so I'm reading increasingly dire headlines that come out of Greece every day. And no matter what's happening with the circus that is the negotiations over Greece's bailouts and, and all of that, the life on the streets there in, in Greece is becoming increasingly more and more dire. And all the chaos we saw there last year was mainly just over the prospect of austerity and reform. And now those reforms are starting to be implemented in many ways. And so why does it make sense maybe in North America, in the United States, in Canada, or even other European nations to pay attention to Greece? Are are we all at risk of eventually turning into Greece? Oh, absolutely. Greece is the canary in the coal mine. It was the most vulnerable, but it's by no means the only one that is vulnerable. And we, we haven't really seen anything like the level of protest that we're going to see in Greece. Pretty much nobody's actually starving at this point. They're angry that their expectations are being dashed and and they can no longer find work. But the safety net hasn't entirely fallen apart yet. It will, though. And so there's going to be a great deal more protest. And we're going to see that spread to the rest of the European periphery. We've already seen major protests in Italy, for instance, and Spain. I think we're going to see a lot of protest in, in Portugal. We saw a lot of protest in England last summer. And the prime minister there was just itching to put the army on the streets to deal with the the rioting. Now, England, of course, isn't part of the Eurozone. The problems there are are somewhat different. But nevertheless, there's the talk of austerity actually turning into real austerity is going to make people so angry. And it's happening in Europe at the moment because that's where the worst of the leverage is. Uh, The banking system's over-levered, enormously over-leveraged, and the housing bubbles are far larger than in most of North America, with the exception of Vancouver. There are so many more problems there. And of course, the euro is uh, entering its its death throes, and people are starting to realize that exposure to euro-denominated assets is, is a bad idea. So that canary in the coal mine that is Greece, that dynamic is going to spread throughout Europe. And I think it's going to spread far more broadly as well. We're going to realize that we're playing that giant game of musical chairs. There's nowhere near enough to go round. People's expectations are going to be dashed. Promises are not going to be kept. And in Canada, we're unbelievably complacent about promises. In Greece, they were less complacent and, and places like Italy as well. Italians don't trust their government's promises. They never have, and rightly so. We have enjoyed relative good governance. That's very much part of, of, of our national identity that we, we enjoy good governance. So we do tend to believe the promises our governments make far more than than a lot of parts of the world. And And how is that different in the United States? Because the governance has been in many ways very different between Canada and the US. There are differences. Americans naturally distrust government. It's very much part of their their founding father's political culture, if you like. Hence, the, the Second Amendment in the United States, the right to bear arms, is not actually about defending yourself against marauding neighbors. It's about defending yourself against your own government about maintaining the balance of power between the periphery and the center. And if the periphery is armed, then the center can't simply steamroller it anything like as easily. That really is the rationale for the 
Second Amendment. So there is that natural distrust. But at the same time, America has been able to live in, uh, well, cloud cuckoo land, to put it mildly. Because they've been the center of the global economy, that is where wealth concentrates, for the middle classes anyway, and the upper class. Already, though, parts of the United States have been third world country status for, for a very long time. It's not like there's general wealth there. There's an enormous amount of horrendous poverty in the States, but it doesn't get any attention because it hasn't reached a critical mass. So far, the critical mass still hasn't realized things have gone over the edge. And so there is still this, the effect of being a beneficiary of being the economic center. So tremendous complacency that things will continue. Not necessarily complacency that the government will look after us, although there is an element of that among the the wealthier people. More a complacency that one's capacity to look after oneself will continue to exist. So it will still be possible to, to find work that will be enough to pay the bills and that the fallback systems such as they are will still continue to exist. So the complacency has a somewhat different character in the States. Here, I think it's far more a simple question that we expect the government to look after us. We expect it to keep its promises to maintain order. Well, if there's a problem, we'll ration things out in a very civilized kind of way and, and no one will really go without. We won't really notice the difference. And so I think that kind of complacency is very, very dangerous. And that, I think, is going to be a major part of our dashed expectations in this country, that we will suddenly realize that government doesn't have the capacity to look after us, and it may not even have the inclination. It's really going to be quite inclined to look after itself. So the analogy I use for this is that when the tax revenues are falling, government will try to sustain itself very much in the way that a hypothermic body will try and maintain the body temperature of the core. Because from the point of view of the core, that is a survival strategy. You cut off the circulation to the fingers and toes in order that the core will still maintain its temperature long enough for the outside environment to improve. So the government will look after itself. It will cut off flows of resources to the periphery, which would be us. We are the fingers and toes. And we, we're going to suddenly think, wait a minute, all, all these flows of resources have been cut off in favor of maintaining government in its present form, rather than actually dealing with the problems of real people on the ground. And, and I think that kind of wake-up call is going to be uh, quite savage for, for people in Canada to come to that realization that government is not on our side and not there to look after us. So we talked with Morris Berman, and he mentioned that the American core culture promotes a kind of an attitude that allows government to point back at, at people as as the personal responsibility and puts it back on them as the reason why people and the economy are, is not doing well. Like, you're not buying enough. You're not, you're not supporting the economy enough. You're not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps hard enough. Uh, we see media venerating rich people and disparaging the poor people all the time on, on TV and on the radio and in print. What role does media play in this game? And is it inevitable that this, this spread of collapse will make its way all the way around the globe? It, basically, it is. Uh, not that it would necessarily be every single last place on the face of the earth, but it'll be the whole developed world and large parts of the developing world that have been in a bubble dynamic as well, like India and China, for instance. So there is going to be tremendous unrest. What the media does is it, it is our mirror of our own emotional state. So at times of outright euphoria, like, say, the dot-com boom, media reflects that euphoria back to us and feeds it. Conversely, at times when we're moving into 
a substantial contraction, what the media do will do is reflect back our own fear and will feed that fear, will we'll fan, fan the flames of fear, in fact, to a large extent. And the further we go into decline, the more the media will play that role. Media reinforces people's biases, people's perceptions, because it's not so much the information it imparts as the tone it imparts that really is the important thing to look at. When, when I read the media, I'm not not looking at, at it at face value. I'm looking at the underlying message about where we are in the kind of emotional spectrum, the collective emotional spectrum between greed and fear, optimism and pessimism. And I'm looking at the, the unconscious or subconscious messages that media conveys. Now, I think it, it, is, it is interesting to note this blame the poor dynamic. It is so unfair. So the poor end up being blamed no matter what they do. If, if they're not spending enough, then they're being told they're not propping up the economy. If they're spending too much, they're being told they're irresponsible, that they're getting into debt, that, that they're living beyond their means. And therefore, when, when they can no longer do that and they have to declare bankruptcy, then, well, they were just grossly irresponsible for having allowed themselves to be, to be charmed by things that they couldn't afford and to spend more money than they had. So the, the people at the bottom of the financial food chain are damned if they do and damned if they don't. And really, if we blame the poor people, we, we're just trying to detract attention from the, the people who have been pushing the Ponzi expansion. And the poor people act as engines of credit expansion when they spend too much. So they are actively encouraged to get into more debt. And then they will be blamed when they have for the consequences of that debt. But the people who are really pushing the development of the Ponzi scheme are in the best position to know that this is a Ponzi scheme, that it will inevitably end badly, and that the decisions that that they are pushing on society are going to turn very badly wrong. And of course, they do these things in the expectation that they will be bailed out. So we're taking attention away from the, from where the dynamic is actually being generated and putting the, putting the blame on the people who have the least power and the least choice. Now, it does take both predatory lending and willing victims to really blow a bubble. So if people at the bottom were genuinely able to resist the temptation of buying things that they can't really afford, that would very much be in their own interests. So they would be, if they were able to say, no, I don't have the money for that now, I'm not going to borrow money and get into a debt hole to buy something, however tempting it might be. If they were able to do that, they would be certainly in less of a hole than they are. But it is very difficult. I'm loath to blame people for giving in to temptation when that temptation is waved in front of them all the time. And they're constantly being told you must keep up with the Joneses, or you're somehow um, morally deficient, because if you don't have as much as everyone else, then then you haven't worked hard enough, you haven't done your bit. And so people are, are enticed with things they can't afford, and then blame blamed if they, if they don't play that kind of game. It's very insidious, so I don't blame them for fa falling for that temptation. It's very much like Hansel and Gretel discovering the witch's gingerbread cottage in, in the woods, and the witch is saying, yes, but 
by all means, you know, eat from my house. Uh, there's these wonderful, tasty candies up there. And what she's trying to do is just trap them so that she can eat them. But the temptation, I mean, two hungry children in the woods coming across a gingerbread house, of course they're going to eat it. They don't understand that it's a trap. The witch absolutely does understand that it's a trap. So I think we have to look at, at the system. Both the predatory impulse and the greed are a part of it, but the greed is more understandable in some ways than the predation. So I think we have to be very careful with how we look at our system and, and to avoid the temptation to play a blame game on the whole, because it really it isn't going to help. It isn't going to help us move forward from where we are and try and find ourselves in a place that works any better or is any more constructive. So is the American consumer kind of just like Hansel and Gretel? Well, basically, they they are being tempted. They found the gingerbread house in the cottage, uh, gingerbread cottage in the woods, rather, and they're they're feeding from it, not realizing that it's a trap. That's that's really the analogy that I'm making. They're being oh, it just tastes so good that they just can't even see that there's really a witch inside the house that's going to eat them. That's exactly it. So mm. things look very good. It's wow, we found the jackpot. We found the gingerbread house in the woods, and now we won't be hungry anymore, and we can indulge ourselves to our heart's content. And they don't see it for the trap that it is. And there there are many ways to entice people into traps. And they might be ways that look like they're bailouts for the little guy. So if you look at cash for clunkers, for instance, or people being given down payments for mortgages, all those are are inducements to get into enormous amounts of debt. So cash for clunkers was, here, have $4,000 towards the purchase of a new car. Well, the dealer sees you coming, for one thing, and knows you have $4,000 in your pocket, so he's going to put his prices up. So it's not like you're actually going to be paying $4,000 less. You might be paying a little less than you would have done otherwise, but not very much. And you'll have got yourself at least probably $20,000 in debt, despite the $4,000. So all it really is, is dangling an inducement in front of people to get into debt. If you tell them you can have $8,000 towards a down payment on a home, then you're basically telling telling them, oh, we want you to get $200,000, $300,000 in debt. We'll give you this little bit of money in order that you dig yourself into a really, really deep hole. So that's using ordinary people to fuel credit expansion, to keep the Ponzi credit expansion going. And that's exactly the kind of thing we can expect to see. Inducements to try to get people to continue borrowing and spending, but it's not going to work because you don't have willing borrowers and lenders anymore. The borrowers are getting to the point where they're maxed out. So if you're thinking of the Hansel and Gretel analogy, they're absolutely stuffed to bursting on gingerbread. And if they eat another mouthful, they're going to be sick. So you can't continue to force feed people credit when they're maxed out. Plus the lenders have got religion about risk all of a sudden. So they're really not lending. The quantitative easing money that people were talking about as being terribly inflationary was actually being given to banks, was not going through the money multiplier effect of fractional reserve lending because it wasn't being lent out. It was going back on reserve at the Fed. So it had no effect on, on the money supply. So when, when we look at, at the way things are playing out, we really have hit a limit. Our credit expansion can cannot continue any further. And one of the things I talk about in my presentation is the diminishing marginal productivity of debt. So if you look back over the last few decades, it used to be that if you borrowed money, you would increase GDP because mostly that money was being borrowed 
borrowed in order to create productive capacity. So you were generating an income stream that would allow you to repay the debt. So this was, in other words, self-liquidating debt. But we moved over time from, from useful means of taking on debt to taking on debt for pure consumption. That burdens other income streams instead of generating an income stream. So that starts to weigh much more heavily on the economy. And what happened in 2008 was we could no longer continue to expand. We reached a point where the marginal productivity of debt went negative. So now if more money is borrowed, it directly subtracts from GDP. And so that these are signals that our credit expansion has run its course, that whatever inducements there may be to get people further into debt are simply not going to work anymore because you no longer have willing borrowers and lenders. I see the smokestacks in my periphery Huffing all the time Spewing the residue Of the working class's faith in democracy Church house tilting on that bank no Attracting folk with give me some money, Lord, yeah. Three-piece snack is riding on a three-minute song With that horse hat Selling out for the subwoofers Bumping, hollering about I'm hungry For freedom, but I don't know How to eat that big Because I'm I enjoy the golden cash, yeah I go for treason If that will increase my pay Because I'm The richest Canadian ever was still Sir Herbert Holt. He controlled $3 billion, 10 times all the Canadian currency then in circulation. Holt was in Toronto for the Royal York Hotel's gala opening in 29. Not long before, he had said the outlook was never better for prolonged prosperity. So the gala could go on forever. The party was over. In the stock exchanges, panic. It was October 29th, 1929. Black Tuesday. Sell, sell, sell. Prices crashing down. Billions lost. Investors wiped out. Suicides. The boom had been an illusion on paper. The wild foxtrot of the 20s was over. Men who wanted to work and factories idle. Why? A hundred explanations, but no answer. Beef roast, 22 cents a pound, but who could afford it? Bread, a dime, a big loaf, but who could afford it? So the bread lines formed and thousands came to know the degradation of the handout. Couldn't the government do something? 5,000 are in the milling mart, trying to prevent trucks from delivering needed food to the city. Outnumbering the police 10 to 1, they attack in gangs. The actual beginning of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, in which one deputy was beaten to death and scores were injured. In this time of the nation's difficulties, we appeal to the common sense of the people for support of the orderly processes of the National Recovery Act as against industrial warfare. It's a terrible thing to see, the kind of trouble that makes neighbors bitter enemies. 
Surely there must be some other and better way of settling these disputes. Now listen to the sheriff. I'm sorry that this thing happened. I done all in my power to stop it. I coaxed and pleaded with the men to get off the picket line. They refused to do it and called me all kinds of names and I had to take action because the law must be enforced. The most disgraceful scenes of disorder New York has witnessed in many years. The rioters, feeling they had nothing to fear from the police, attacked cab drivers, smashed cabs, and dragged passengers from them. Here they are hitting one of the drivers without being arrested, destroying private property on the streets of the world's largest city while the police stood by. The industrial dispute has now reached an extremely serious position. When morning broke, combat still continued against 500 men of the National Guard who were vainly attempting to quell the riot. Police and guardsmen found it necessary to use tear and nausea gas bombs, the fumes choking and blinding friend and foe alike, and even penetrating into the adjoining houses. Casualties were numerous. The authorities were eventually compelled to use firearms. Three deaths are already reported. The Mosesuk Cemetery and the Central Falls saw some of the fiercest fighting. Both strikers and police took advantage of the gravestones as a protection from the missiles. And neither side could claim an advantage, and it's feared that greater loss of life will ensue. And I have said to our people, hit back! And I'm saying to you in Rhode Island, if you're hit, there is but one nose! Hit back! Hit as hard as you can! We are asking for a general strike to keep organized labor on the Pacific Coast. We're not only asking for it, but we're going to get it. The California National Guard has been ordered into active service by our governor for the purpose of maintaining law and order in San Francisco and protecting life and property. This we propose to do at any cost. This great nation will endure as it has endured. We will find and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. As Franklin D. Roosevelt spoke these simple and inspiring words in 1933, Americans from coast to coast, weary from years of economic hardship, were willing to take the freshly minted president at his word. He offered them hope, which was all that many people had left. The economic hardships brought on by the Great Depression had reached a pinnacle by the spring of 1933. On March 4th, an unprecedented event had occurred. Each and every bank had closed its doors. For some, this measure was only temporary. But for a large number, the economic crisis was a permanent reality. The banking system was near collapse. A quarter of the labor force was unemployed. And prices and production were down by a third from their 1929 levels. Detroit is yet another of the American cities to suffer from the present strike situation, and this particular demonstration attracts 60,000 people. But this number is a mere handful compared to the 138 millions who are affected by the spreading challenge to law and order. Strike or no strike, my family comes first. I'm a textile worker, and I'm not making much money, but at least I got a job, and that's better than nothing. I earn $3.50 a week trying to support a family of four on this way. I've been a textile mill worker for 20 years. Today, I am doing more work and getting less pay than I ever did before. I adore the golden cash. I go for trees, son, if that will. 
increase my pay because I'm under. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Nicole Foss of The Automatic Earth about life in hard times, the Great Depression, and debt deflation. Maybe some of our listeners have been seeing a financial crash in the cards for a while. I've been seeing all the issues because maybe they were aware of peak oil or energy issues. But do you find that there's a lot of general misunderstandings about financial collapse and, and what people think about when they're starting to actually plan for it? Absolutely. Basically, economics bears no resemblance to reality at all, neoclassical economics. So people are fed an understanding of the system that is completely and utterly wrong. Its foundations are built on sand. The assumptions that go into economics bear no resemblance to reality. And people are taught all the way through the education system, to the extent they're taught anything about economics at all, more than pure propaganda, everything they're taught is wrong. So they really have no understanding whatsoever of the real nature of the crisis and why the crisis is going to play out the way that it is. So there tends to be a perception that we're facing horrendous inflation, that governments are going to print money, that prices are going to go through the roof and, and everything is going to, to get on that, that inflationary spiral, a wage price spiral. And that is absolutely so far away from the way this is going to play out. It's ridiculous. Governments are not printing money. They're trying to midwife credit. And as we discussed, that isn't going to work anymore. So we are not looking at an enormous expansion of the money supply. We're looking at a contraction. And prices are not going to to rise when the money supply is falling because contraction of the money supply will undercut price support. So prices are going to fall, not rise. The price rises we have seen over, over the last few years are a lagging effect of the inflation, the monetary inflation we saw before. That monetary inflation topped out in 2008, but we're still seeing prices rise as a lagging effect of people having had more purchasing power in their pockets. And also that to some extent during the rally, there was a resurgence of that effect. So it's the lagging effect of the reflation we saw during the rally as well that has continued to, to uh, give us relative price support. But now that we're moving into contract again, and we're on the verge of a very sharp contraction this time, now we're going to be seeing prices fall. But because price movements lag changes in the money supply, prices won't fall immediately. Prices will fall over time following the money supply down, following down with the contraction in the money supply. So we're going to see prices come down, but we're going to see the disappearance primarily of credit. So the credit is the vast majority of the money supply. As credit starts to disappear, that's going to take a lot of money of the money supply away. We're going to realize there's actually not very much cash in the system at all. And when we're reduced to having only what little cash there is because the credit has gone away, then we'll realize that hardly anybody actually has any. So it's going to be a major wake-up call that we're going to see there's very, very little money in the system. And what money there is in the system is not going to be circulating in the economy because people are going to stop spending when they don't know where their next paycheck is coming from. So we're going to start to see an economic seizure. We're going to see a collapse in the velocity of money, which means 
the rate at which money circulates in the economy. And money is the lubricant in the engine of the economy in the way that motor oil is the lubricant in the engine of your car. So when you try and run any kind of engine without enough liquidity, without enough lubricant, it is going to seize up on you. That is what we are facing. And almost nobody understands that at all. It's going to be a rerun of the 1930s, only only worse. But because the 1930s are on the verge of moving out of living memory, and for most of us, they occurred long before we were born, we do not have a sense of how depressions genuinely play out. Our memories are more of inflationary times, so we naturally think in terms of crisis equals more of what we've already had. We're just extrapolating past trends into the future and thinking, well, if we continue to do this, we might be in trouble. But what we are actually going to see is not a continuation of the past trend. We are going to see a very sharp trend reversal, and we're going to see things go very rapidly in the opposite direction with a contraction of the money supply and falling prices, but things getting less affordable because purchasing power is falling faster than price. Almost nobody understands that dynamic or understands why it's absolutely inevitable that it will play out that way. So what I'm really trying to do is to teach ordinary people how finance works, how the system actually functions and what we are facing so that they can try and navigate a very, very difficult future. And what I'm trying to do in explaining finance to ordinary people is to keep more of the resources that will come out of a collapsing Ponzi scheme at the base of the wealth pyramid. Because Otherwise, if ordinary people do not understand how the system works, whatever comes out of a collapsing Ponzi scheme will end up either disappearing in a black hole of credit destruction or disappearing into the back pockets of bankers and the very well-connected. Ordinary people are hardly going to get a look in at all. By trying to explain to ordinary people how the system works so that they can get hold of what assets they have and protect those assets while there's still time to do so, that will keep wealth at the bottom of the financial food chain in the hands of people who will do something genuinely useful with it. That, I think, is is extremely important. Now, it's also unfair in a lot of ways. I'm sorry, why, why is it important to keep it at the bottom? Why is that important for us? Because it's decentralized initiatives, community-based grassroots initiatives that will really be the future, that have the best chance of getting us through the coming bottleneck. They have to be funded somehow. So if there's no wealth at the grassroots, none at all, it's all been sucked up to the center, then that will put a very hard limit on what kind of decentralization initiatives can really get off the ground. I am trying to put money in the hands of people at the grassroots in order that they have the capacity to fund these initiatives. Now, it's it's going to be sort of messy and unfair because a few people will end up with protecting with their, the ability to protect their assets. Few people will be able to hang on to their assets and other people won't. So there'll be a major change in who has money and who doesn't. But I tell people, if you do manage to preserve your assets to get hold of them out of a collapsing Ponzi scheme, do not think I'm all right, Jack, and sit on those assets and just expect to enjoy the benefits of them yourself. Because if you do that, you've just painted a giant target on your forehead. What you need to do is to regard those assets as then a community responsibility. So if you have more, you have the responsibility to do more on behalf of your community, very much including pooling resources and funding community initiatives. Now, other people have a lot to bring to the table. The people who don't have any money will have time or skills or enthusiasm or 
infrastructure that they can share or something. People who have money have only one component of what needs to be shared, but it is an important component. So in trying to keep money at the base of the pyramid, I'm trying to set up the potential for that wealth to be shared within the community. However, that will depend on the individuals who have control of the money, trying to convince them that it's in their interests to look after others because there is no better guarantor of your security than having your survival be in other people's interests. So the Alex Jones mindset of having gold, having guns, having, you know, having your wealth all in a bunker down underneath your house is is the wrong way to go about it then. Oh, yes. I mean, basically, if you just try and isolate yourself with a whole pile of gold and guns and ammo, you've created a gilded prison, but it's absolutely a prison, whether it's gilded or not. And then you won't be able to sleep at night. You know, if you're in a remote location, how will you go to sleep unless there are there are an awful lot of people around to take turns with the guns. If you're in a gated community, for instance, how are you going to go to sleep when you never know if someone's going to outbid you for the services of the security guard on the gate and let someone in who's then going to take everything you have? So I think <laughs> that whole, you know, isolate yourself and sit on your pile of wealth is a terrible way to go about it. You make yourself a target. I mean, we see this in places like South Africa, for instance, enormous walls to keep people out but a horrendous crime rate. And when people do get in beyond those walls, it tends to go extremely badly for the people who were living there because the people who broke in take great delight in in harming, not just stealing from the people behind the gates, but actively harming them as well. So I, I think people who take that route are making themselves extremely vulnerable in ways perhaps they don't quite appreciate. I think it's far better to say there's strength in numbers, there's strength and capacity to deal with hard times in community. And yes, there is a place in some ways for for the Second Amendment approach to things. Sometimes you do need to be able to protect what you have with, with weaponry, but I would rather that was considered a very secondary approach. I would rather people thought in terms of primarily strength in numbers and looking after each other. And then there are all kinds of other passive safety features like, for instance, oh, window shutters or keeping a dog or or having a gate or motion-sensitive lighting and things like that. We do need to protect what we have. There will be people whose strategy is to take from those who did because they either didn't have anything themselves to protect or it was, or they just didn't bother to protect it in time and they're going around trying to take things from others. I do think we have to be aware that that is going to happen and take steps to protect what we have, but the best protection we can possibly have is each other. And that, I think, is fundamentally more constructive. If someone's listening and wants to start assessing their vulnerability, Abilities. What's the first steps they can start taking towards doing that? Well, to think through what are they dependent upon? So if they continue to live in whatever place they're living in, what do they have to have in order for that place to be habitable or to be useful? So are they dependent on a car or are there buses or can they walk? If they're in an apartment building and they're above the third floor, well, they're dependent on electricity to pump water up there. Without electricity supplies, there will be no water in that apartment above approximately the third floor. So those are things that they can think about. Or when you look at at how vulnerable you are in terms of debt, it's what amount of money do I have to be making every month in order to continue to service this debt? What would happen if the interest rates went up? What kind of capacity do I have to service debt at a higher rate of interest? Because most people don't realize how vulnerable they are to an incredibly small rise in interest rates. When it's not a small rise we're facing, it's a large one. So 
people need to think about vulnerabilities like that. Now, if you think through those vulnerabilities, you can reduce some of them. And if you realize that you are acutely vulnerable to a small rise in interest rates, for instance, if it's a property that you are indebted on, then sell the property and get out from under the debt. If it's credit card debt, then make every effort to pay that down so that you're not constantly on the hook for horrendous payments. So in financial terms, it's things like debt. But in terms of of the physical structure of where we live, it's could we live without access to gas? Could we live without access to electricity? What happens if the people who run the water system stop being able to to afford to, to put chlorine in the water supply and then we end up with sewage contamination or something like that? So think through what ways you might be able to insulate yourself from some of those eventualities. In the case of the water system, for instance, you can have a water filter run all the water through a filtration system Aid agencies use these in the third world where you can drink out of puddles full of goat droppings and still not get sick. So if you run things through a decent filtration system, that's one less thing you have to worry about, the quality of your water. I'm not suggesting that water won't come out of the tap, but I do think it's possible over time that what comes out of the tap might not be particularly healthful. So you can take the health maintaining aspect of that into your own hands by preparing in advance. In the case of Vancouver, for our water purification, there's trucks that deliver chlorine and there was an, an occasion a few years ago because of heavy flooding that part of the road was blocked and there were some serious concerns that the trucks that bring the chlorine in would have very limited access and it was just a few days away from not having enough chlorine to, to put into the water supply so that can happen very quickly. And also there are many things, water treatment being one of them, uh, there are many others as well, that simply are quite sophisticated processes that require a lot of coordination and for a lot of things to continue to go right. And it doesn't take more than one of those things not to go right before your coordinated, carefully sorted out system doesn't deliver what it's meant to deliver anymore. So, for instance, what we saw in uh, Walkerton, Ontario, was a contamination of the water supply because the people who were running it simply hadn't got their act together. People not getting their act together is a major part of what happens in contraction. People are worried about other things, so they don't necessarily do their job properly. So we can start worrying about air, airline safety and things like that, or nuclear safety. These are all things that require a tremendous amount of coordination. I mean, I remember another instance of water contamination from Camelford, Cornwall, where a trucker had accidentally put a waste product in the wrong tank so that it went into the drinking water supply rather than the waste system, and it caused neurological damage for thousands of people. So there are a whole lot of things that can happen that can have major effects. I'm at water and I think uh, several thousand people were ill and, and several people died of E. coli poisoning. So we do have to think about what we are dependent on. Water is a huge one. I mean, when you have water systems go wrong, you can get cholera and all sorts of epidemics. So we can take some simple steps to try to protect ourselves against vulnerabilities like unclean water. We can take other steps to protect ourselves against sporadic power supplies. So for instance, if we know our basement is going to flood if the sump pump doesn't work, well, we can put in a battery backup. And then we don't end up with the foundations of our home being undermined by flooding in ways that could actually mean that the home is no longer structurally sound. So there are, there are relatively minor things that can make a really big difference to insulating ourselves against certain vulnerabilities. You mentioned before that we, we need to take that wealth that we have as individuals and are going to need to share it 
for people that have, you know, 401ks or, you know, large amounts of money invested in mutual funds or bonds or stocks or something in that nature, should that should they keep the money in those places or should they be moving it towards, you know, like gold or should they be moving it towards just like you say, uh, improvements of their house or buying water filtration systems? Is it a move away from these financial instruments that should be happening instead or, you know, should we have a whole bunch of money under our mattress? But where should the money be living? Well, money that is in the grip of the system is at risk because the vast majority of it is excess claims to underlying real wealth. The collateral at the base of the system has been drastically overpledged against gargantuan quantities of debt. Most financial assets are nothing more than an obligation to pay someone something, and that is going to turn out to be promises that can't be kept. So I'm definitely telling people that whatever you have in the grip of the system, whether it's in a bank account, a brokerage account, your mutual funds, pension funds, this is money that is at risk, and the risk is growing sharply over time. As we saw with with MF Global, the collapse of MF Global was from one day to the next, and and the customer's money was simply gone, and they're never going to see it back again. So if you're what you have is caught up in the system, it is subject to very rapid disappearance. It simply goes poof in the night, or it can do. And so that is a major catastrophic level of risk. What I tell people to do is to try and have the most control they possibly can over what they have. So that will mean money, real cash under their own control, be way more creative than mattresses. That's far too obvious, but people will simply have to be creative with whatever creative potential their own uh, circumstances allow. So you do need a certain amount of actual access to cash. You know, if, if ATMs stop working and are no longer dispensing anything, you had better have some money on hand or you're going to be in trouble really very quickly. So it doesn't have to be an enormous amount, but whatever you can manage, I tell people if you can, a few months worth, a year's worth, I realize that that's very much easier said than done. And there are an awful lot of people who couldn't possibly do that. That's like several thousand dollars, right? Like a couple hundred, oh, maybe $10,000. Yeah. I mean, it depends how much a few months to a year's worth of cash would be for you individually. Um, some people's are, expenditures are a lot more than, than others. But I would say if you can at least manage to put aside, you know, even if you haven't got very much, if you can manage to put aside a week's worth, it's better than nothing. No, and then try and, of course, if you actually have to use it, to spin it out as long as you possibly can. Basically, anything you can put aside will be a cushion against money not being available in the system anymore. And that can be very, very important. The other thing, as we discussed is is hard goods like water filters or wind-up radios or solar cookers. And if people have enough to be able to get out of debt and hold a certain amount of cash and buy hard goods, then that's absolutely great. That's that's the best kind of insulation against general economic upheaval that you can have. Now, some things like the hard goods I just mentioned are not actually terribly expensive anyway. So a lot of people could afford to do that. And they might be able to buy themselves out of a lot of vulnerability at relatively little expense. So hard goods like that are very much worth buying up front. The prices may fall over time, but on the other hand, they may not be available at any price. Right now, you can get things like a solar cooker that's made by the Amish with the internet and a credit card with no trouble whatsoever. But if you lose access to either the internet or a credit card or both, good luck getting something that's Amish made in Ohio. So we don't make them 
in our own areas and then we, we are out of luck. The same goes with water filters. So certain things it is worth getting hold of up front. Other things like say a farm, if that's uh, where your inclinations take you, it's the rare person who can buy a farm with no debt. So you would have to wait for prices to fall before you would think in terms of, of putting money into something like that. It's important to do it with no debt because if you buy something on margin with debt, you're simply going to lose it. Somebody's going to foreclose on it. So it's not worth making investments with borrowed money. The odds are that you simply end up losing whatever it is that you that you bought. Unless, of course, you can run away with it out of the country or something like that. There may be some things that fall under those uh, circumstances. But it, that really is, well, it's criminal for one thing. And I certainly wouldn't encourage anything along those lines. I, I think there are so many genuinely constructive things that we can do that we really do not have to think in terms of gaming the system in ways that cause negative impacts on on other people needlessly. So, I mean, there, there are always going to be ways to protect yourself that, that are uh, not, not very advisable. I think we need to stick with the ones that are advisable because there are plenty of those to be going on with. We are in the midst of covering a massive outbreak of severe weather this evening, the likes of which we're not sure we've ever seen before. 155 million Americans have been in the path of severe weather today and remain so tonight. We've had tornadoes in eight states so far. They are all over the map in the southeast, including some major cities, including some smaller towns that are frankly no longer standing. Neighbors are showing up and digging in, and they are making a difference without ever being asked. Their story from Harveyville, Kansas. When the call went out in America's heartland, looks like this is Harveyville Road over here. Volunteers answered by the hundreds, strangers helping strangers. Ron Snotty's a retired carpenter and one-time rodeo rider. You're working hard out here. Well, that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? Missy Tenbrink's taking time off from her job as a nurse at a Topeka hospital. It doesn't matter whether you know him or not. It's, it's a small town. It's what you do. Retired school teacher Mike Mikos worked alongside. Does that make any difference that, that this is a stranger's house you're working on? No, because someday I may need it. And he may come up there and help me. Sound of help. Some were armed with chainsaws, shovels, and front loaders. Others use just their sweat and muscle to clean up this town where almost half the houses are rubble. Volunteers have poured into Harveyville from across the region, even from out of state. There are so many that they've tripled the town's population, normally less than 300 people. I'm just overwhelmed. I'm and those here struggling yesterday. to pick up the pieces of their lives are grateful. 
the response that we've had, it's just been tremendous. You know, most of my intellectual as opposed to activist work in recent years has been about these questions of localized economies and things. And there are good environmental reasons to do them and so on and so forth. But the real reasons have to do with rebuilding connection and community. Statistically, Americans are less happy with their lives than they were 50 years ago because they have much less connection. The average American has half as many close friends. That's what happens when you devote your economic life to building bigger houses farther apart from each other, which has been our task. In environmental and in human terms, we can go in a new way. People from everywhere are coming to help and just the fact that in a time like this that people can really just come, like people that don't even know each other can come and help and bring what resources we have. Some just couldn't find the words. When you see all these people driving in, it, it, it's... As an army of strangers pulls together to form a community of caring. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking with Nicole Foss of The Automatic Earth. you go about talking about these ideas to, to people who don't really understand them so much or you know say something like we were talking about our parents before how do you bring up ideas that are that are so I mean these ideas are pretty far outside of people's normal thought processes they don't you don't see them on TV you don't really see them in, in media how do you go about bringing these ideas up to people who have say have been a part of the system for their whole lives who have been indoctrinated in these in the capitalistic way of thinking and they have they have no doubt that in you know 10 years, they're going to be able to retire on their large 401ks. How do, how do you do that? Well, you raise an interesting point. The first part of your question was, how do you explain these ideas to people who don't know anything about it? And then, then the second part was, how do you explain it to people who think they know something about it, but what they know is wrong? It's actually much easier to explain it to the former group of people. So I find it's a lot easier to explain these ideas to, say, high school students or university students who've never studied economics and therefore don't have any blinders, who have no prior information, no prejudices, nothing standing in the way that they would have to unlearn before they can learn how the world really works. Explaining the ideas to them is not hard at all. Explaining it to people who think they know but are mistaken is very much more difficult. So it really is a question of having to work on undermining the, the worldview in the sense of asking them to challenge their assumptions, to think through the assumptions that their view is based on. And you probably have to do that with one assumption at a time. And eventually the idea is to get them to the point where they realize that every one of the assumptions they've they've built their worldview on is fundamentally mistaken. At that point, perhaps you can try to substitute a different worldview or, or show them how assumptions that are actually grounded in reality lead to a very different worldview. So it's not that you have to 
impose ideas on people, but you have to give them the tools to come to the right conclusions. And that really is the way to tackle it. It won't work with everybody, though. It's so hard to do. It's very difficult to convince people who have a very entrenched mindset, who have a lot to lose. But in some ways, the more they have to lose, the more they, they cling to the system that gave them what they had, because that's all they know. And it's what they benefited from. And they can't conceive of a different future. So they stay blinkered and stuck in the system. And the risk is they will lose everything. Being, you know, in our mid early 20s or maybe just finishing up a university degree, how is preparing for all of this different than perhaps how our parents would prepare? Well, basically, the older generation, because they typically have a lot of assets to look after, it'll be about trying to preserve capital. And how do you do that? Well, you preserve capital as liquidity largely. But for for young people, they don't have access to assets. And some of them are also carrying a fair amount of debt. I would say if there's any way to get out of debt, then then by all means do so, even if it means you have to live on a shoestring and not be able to do a lot of the things that, that one's friends would take for granted. Trying to get out of debt means that nobody has a sort of Damocles over your head. Nobody owns your life. If you're already not in debt, then you're a long way ahead of the curve. And it's a question of staying that way and then thinking how you could develop your abilities in order to provide a essential goods or services without having to get into debt to do it. So think through what your abilities are and how you could develop those in ways that don't cost a lot of money. So you're not having to take out huge amounts of student loans or jump through hoops just to be able to tick a box to say, I am now qualified to do this. There are quite a lot of skills that one can develop that don't involve getting involved in that whole box ticking hoop jumping paradigm that's really all about using young people as engines of credit expansion and treating them as the next generation of debt slaves, which is a horrible thing to do to the younger generation. And that's exactly what we have been doing for a very long time. So for younger people, it's a question of staying out of the trap while trying to imagine how you could be useful in the future. Because if you can be useful, you will still be able to put food on the table. I think we also, however, need to bring the generations together because a lot of the time it's going to be a question of putting together the assets of the older generation with the physical abilities of the younger generation. So the older generation, they have generally little debt and lots of assets, but their pensions are going to disappear. Their health care coverage is going to go away at the very time they would need to rely on it. So they have their own vulnerabilities. The younger generation has not much assets and a lot of debt, but they have their youth and they have their health. And if you put those two halves together, then you create something that is very much more robust as a structure than either side could ever hope to be on its own. The state supports and the external supports that we've become accustomed to are going away. We are not going to have them. So we're going to have to look after ourselves at an individual level, at a family level, at a community level, all simultaneously, of course. But the more connections, the more interdependence we can build, the more pooling of resources we can do, the better off all of us will be. The Great Depression played out over a very long period of time. And so I was wondering if you could give us some insights into what it was like to live during the Great Depression. And what did people do to support themselves for jobs, for money? And are there any things that we could do in the future to support ourselves uh, to, to earn money or valuable skills that we could have? It was very, very difficult 
assault in the 1930s. So you would have, say, groups of men standing on a street corner waiting to see if a truck would pull up and pick a few of them to go off to work at the docks or something like that. You know, this was difficult. On any given day, a few of them would get some work and be able to earn some, earn some money. Other people would have to go back home again. And there were certain payments that were available, some relief programs, but they weren't really enough to live on. People were having to you know, not be able to heat their homes, not be able to feed their children. It was really, really difficult for a very long period of time. There are pictures of well-dressed men in suits wandering through the streets with a sandwich board saying, we'll work for food and things. People were just desperate. And they, re they had a lot of pride. They didn't want to take handouts. They wanted to work for a living. These days, I think we're an awful lot more comfortable with handouts than people were back then. We have less pride in self-sufficiency, which is which is somewhat sad. So I don't know to what extent we will try and be as proactive as they did then in trying to look for things. I think when we get desperate enough, we, we will be proactive and we will be out there trying to look for anything that we can do to earn a living. And it's not going to be what we would necessarily want to be doing. We're going to find, an awful lot of us are going to find, we are forced to do whatever is available that will pay. And when there's a large amount of unemployment. People have no bargaining power, either individually or collectively. That makes life so much harder for everyone. If you've uh, read The Grapes of Wrath, for instance, when an enormous number of people were had been driven off their land in, on the plains and ended up in California expecting to pick fruit, because there were so many of them, they were absolutely exploited to the nth degree by the people who ran the farms in California. They were paid less than living wages, even although what they needed to live on was incredibly modest. They were just being exploited and used. And this this was a horrible dynamic. But I think we are going to live through that kind of period again, where the balance of power is going to shift because unemployment will be high. The few people who still have money and who have the capacity to employ others are going to have a lot of power over the lives of those others. So I think we're going to be looking at more kind of Dickensian working conditions, which which is absolutely tragic. And, and I very much hope that people don't think that because I'm predicting this, that somehow this is what I want to have happen. Absolutely not. I, I think it's ghastly, but I think it's very much where this, the dynamic that is unfolding is unfortunately going to be taking us. And you're right that the depression lasted a long time. The initial collapse, the deleveraging occurred from 1929 to 1933. That was the, the stock market collapse. The, the world of finance is a leading indicator. The, the real economy follows behind. So so the depression lasted for years and years beyond the point where the stock market was starting to recover again. And I think we're going to see the same thing again. I think we're going to see a very long period of economic depression. And this is going to be something that has to be endured. It doesn't mean it will always be equally bad, however. I mean, one thing we saw in the 1930s was a reflation between 33 and 37 that did improve conditions somewhat. And then you had a secondary collapse from 37 to 42, and things got very difficult again. And in a way, it was that second collapse where people just started to lose it because they lived through the first collapse. Things had started to look up again. They were just starting to get to the point where people thought, finally, it's over. Things are getting better. The rug was pulled out from under their feet a second time. And that's when you started to get the major problems with people just becoming very angry. That's where you started to get public support for, for conflict, for instance. 
Americans. So the impetus to go to war tends to come out of that second rug pulling out from under the feet episode. We may well live through something similar. Or you could, in fact, argue that the reflation from 2003 to 2007 following the tech wreck was our period where we thought things were getting back to normal. Or on a smaller scale, we could say the reflation from March 2009 to 2011 was our feeling that we were getting back to normal again. So these things work on different degrees of trend. You can you can look at a reflation reigniting the hopes of the, of the masses at different scales simultaneously. But having had our hopes reignited, when the rug is pulled out from under our feet again, that tends to be when people get very angry. So we could find that the gap between the uh, the the fall this time and the impetus to go to war is a lot shorter than one might expect. And I think that that is again a terrible dynamic, but but it is predictable that we are going to start to see more in the way of conflict, that there's going to be a blame game, a tendency to go and kick someone else to make ourselves feel better. And and that that is all part of the psychology of contraction, where people are angry and afraid and looking for scapegoats. And, and it is part of the tragedy of our times. So as we see this rug being slowly pulled out from under us, we, we've seen it for a number of years now, and people's dreams are slowly you know eroding and the debt is just mounting and mounting and mounting. Should people feel hopeful that there is a future ahead of them? Should people feel that there is something that they that they can do to make this better? Is there something that that you feel that as as this all unravels and as all your predictions start to come true, is there that hope within you that people and humans will survive? The hope relies on getting our expectations in line with reality so that we know the scope of what is physically possible and get ourselves into a mindset where we're prepared to live within what is realistic. That is going to be step number one. If we can do that, then there's a lot we can do. And yes, I do have hope that people will get their act together and will build small, simple, decentralized initiatives at a community level that the grassroots initiatives can grow to the point where people will be able to look after themselves a little bit more and not have to be so reliant on external safety nets. I think that is the critical fact because if we are dependent on external safety nets that are going away, if we've done nothing to look after ourselves to build self-reliance, then we are going to be at the mercy of whatever fate has to throw at us and we are not going to like that because it's going to be horrible. If we can build parallel structures at a community level before the centralized systems have collapsed, then we have something to fall back on. And yes, it will not look like what we are used to, not even slightly, but it will, if we do it properly, provide the basics. And if we're prepared to live with the basics, then I think there's going to be an upside to that as well. Yes, there's the downside of disappointment of having to take a giant step backwards in terms of material standard of living. But in our expansion years, when we were seeking out increases in material standard of living, we were compromising our societies because we were becoming extremely atomized. We were breaking down the ties that bind, the interdependencies, breaking down the community that that ultimately is what makes people happy, that is the fundamental foundation for society. We have damaged that a lot in recent years, in recent decades, in fact. I think what we have now is the chance to rebuild community and to to rediscover what it means to be human. And, and I think there is a tremendous amount of potential 
potential for individual fulfillment in that. Once we go back to a situation where we genuinely engage with other people, we haven't done that much. We, we've tended to value autonomy over civic engagement. Now we must go back to civic engagement because autonomy will leave us high and dry. We, we will not be protected at all if we try to say that, no, we're an island and we can manage on our own. No man is an island. If, if we go back into a culture of civic engagement, there is a great deal that can be done, even without a lot of resources and without a lot of money. There's a lot that people can do if they're prepared to put in the effort that it takes to pool what resources we have. Yes, I have hope. I, I wouldn't do what I do if I had no hope that anything could work. I'm not telling people it would be easy. It absolutely won't. It will be very difficult and it will be fighting an uphill battle and decentralization initiatives will be a threat to wealth conveyance in favor of the center, which the center is addicted to. So the center will try and actively target decentralization initiatives, make them much more difficult and dangerous than they should be. But if we do this anyway, if we do decentralize, then we do have a future that is genuinely worth living. We live lifestyles that the kings and queens of old would have envied. There's a tremendous amount of scope for living with, with less material wealth and far more interconnected with, with the people who surround us. And and I think that, that that is a hopeful vision, as difficult as it will be to get there. If we do nothing, we know that we fail and we're at the mercy of fate. And that is going to be a horrible position to be in. So I think we need to do that which is within our power, recognizing it will be difficult, but go ahead and do it anyway, because this is what we can do. And this is what gives us the best hope we can possibly have. Seth, that's the end of our interview with Nicole. And I was really struck by how we were talking about life in the Great Depression, how people would line up at a street corner to hopefully hop on a truck to go get work. And if you weren't one of the lucky people that went and actually got on that truck and got work, you just didn't get money. And people who had money did okay in the Great Depression, but the vast majority of people did not have money, and so times were really hard. And I recall my trip over to Spain and Greece last year talking to people there who were young, and those countries have unbelievably high youth unemployment. Greece has over 50% of its youth unemployed now, and an unemployment rate of above 25%, and Spain has I think a 23 or 24% overall unemployment rate with something like 35 or 40% of its youth unemployed. It's just ridiculous numbers. But what was happening is that a lot of those people were trying to leave and go to other countries and they would come to the United States, they'd come to the UK, they'd come to Canada to see if things were better and they'd say, you know what, 
I'm going to have a difficult time finding a job there. So oftentimes they would just go home. Those are numbers that are comparable to what it was like in the Great Depression. You know, 20% of people out of work. And I don't know if you saw a similar dynamic when you were in Spain recently, Seth. I did see that. I spoke to lots of my friends who are looking for jobs and trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. And many of them had moved back home and many of their friends had moved back home. And, you know, giving up the dream of what a college education education can bring you and what you expect your life to be, the change from those expectations to one that's more realistic to your time is something that's very, very hard to come to grips with. And it's very difficult to, to make your, to wrap your mind around the fact and wrap your parents' mind around the fact that this is not something that's going to change right away. This is not something that's going to get better very quickly. This is something that's going to take a long time before we see any sort of broad scale improvement. Yeah, exactly. These are structural problems. This is structural unemployment. And these are very difficult problems to solve because they're built into the structure of the entire global economy. And so for them to turn around, it requires a massive shift in the policies that are being pursued. But it also requires an entire retooling of the economy. And right now, all I'm hearing from politicians in Europe and from the US is mostly stay the course, Let's keep heading in the same direction we've been heading for the last 30 years since the yeah. 80s. And let's just double down and do it even harder. I listen to these Republican nominees for president and I just get so disgusted. Anytime I turn on the radio and they're talking, I just shut it right off because they're talking about the same exact things that the last four or five presidents have talked about. And we're in a massive amount of debt and they talk about the same exact things. It boggles my mind. I don't understand it. How come people could just sit there and listen to these, these men babble on when the biggest problem of our time is getting off of oil and the, the huge amount of unemployment numbers that are just rocking our nation and our, in our entire world? For me, it feels like many people that are in the, the political class and in the elite have their heads in the ground. And, you know, the people that are young and graduating from college and are very poor and, you know, in, very much indebted, they're either trying to make their way into that upper class some way or just being very poor and living in a very, in very terrible conditions. You were talking about your frustration from hearing the Republican candidates. I feel that same frustration from not only hearing the Republican candidates, but also hearing Obama speak, too. Oh, definitely. You know, it's crazy that people can run for such a powerful position being completely out of touch with reality. But it's also so disappointing that someone can hold that office and be so out of touch with reality. And I don't know about you, Seth, but I was actually holding some reserved excitement during the Obama 2008 campaign. I was thinking like, man, for most of my adult life, it's been George W. Bush as president, and he's just been a disgrace and all of these issues. And I was really excited to get someone who could actually speak without stuttering and who, you know, addressed environmental issues in his speeches. And I go back to YouTube and I watch some of those Obama speeches and they were really exciting. He was talking about meaningful things and he would say things like, Our time of standing pat, of protecting narrow interests and putting off unpleasant decisions, that time has surely passed. And then we've just had four years of escalating wars and drones in the sky 
and indefinite detentions. When you, if you were to go back and to interview the YouTube Obama four years ago, and then have him talk to you know the president now, I wonder what he would say. Like this hope for change, this hope for big changes in the world, but there haven't been the big changes. And you know you can you can blame the Republicans in the Senate, you can blame the people in the House. They they didn't pass my bills because I I tried. You know I'm really trying really hard, but the facts come down to it that there haven't been any changes and the changes that have passed have been so insignificant as to really not really make much of a difference and the wars have continued like you said and jobs really have not improved very much that we've seen tiny little bumps but they go right back down again and it's it's kind of sad and it makes me really really depressed and not really want to be involved in politics and that's completely understandable and it's a double-edged sword because i feel like part of me just wants to completely ignore the incredibly depressing federal government reality in the united states and here in canada as well we've had this robocall scandal which may not have been discussed at all in the u.s where you are seth but i haven't heard about it what is it here in canada the conservative party has the most seats in the parliament and so recently this whole thing called the robocall scandal has surfaced and they had robotic calls go to people in very small areas and say Automated message from Elections Canada. Elections Canada, the office that oversees elections, and there has been overwhelming amount of turnout at your district. Please go to this other place on the other side of town to vote, giving them the complete wrong information. Due to projected increase in voter turnout, your total location has been changed. Your new voting location. That was not true. Really? Yeah, and so what it did is it reduced voter turnout in some areas. That's terrible. What's happening is that it's very much cast a, a pale mood on Canadian electoral politics because if you suddenly start doubting the ability to have your vote count in a meaningful way and that people aren't gaming the system, then you really lose faith. And if there's one thing that Canadians have about their system is it is faith. As Nicole was talking about, Canada's had a really easy time in many ways over the last few decades because we've had stable banks even more so than the U.S. and we've had so many resources here that Canadians do have a lot of faith in the system. And to have that shaken from them, it's really a very traumatic thing and so many people are suddenly realizing the incredibly depressing state of federal electoral politics and so part of me wants to ignore it but then the other part of me says you know there's no way that we're going to be able to make the kind of broad sweeping changes that are needed in society unless we address the higher levels because we're not going to be able to fix all this if all of us start using you know compostable bags and you know the the yeah. the scale of the problem doesn't matter if you're using a disposable coffee cup or not like it that is just 0.001% of the whole issue if we all just switched over and started using less less waste in that form for a consumer economy it it actually deals with issues that are beyond the consumption issue it's the actual logic of capitalism itself that is causing this issue and until that is changed we're just going to go through a series of crises that just get far worse. And we're just going to get more and more of us bumped into this kind of extended malaise of unemployment like they have in Spain and Greece and a lot of other Mediterranean countries. And in the U.S. too, you know, every year that more and more people graduate from institutions of higher education, so many of them are just bumped out into an economy where they have massive debt and no 
real way of paying that back with a meaningful job. And so we're just all slowly entering an underclass that Nicole Foss was talking about, where it's like what life was like during the Great Depression. You know, with the message that Nicole gives and watching the political circus that goes on, the radio pundits that just talk their heads off in the 24-hour news cycle, it's hard not to be a little bit cynical sometimes, I feel like. But one thing that there's a little bit of a shred of hope for is citizen radio, citizen journalism, independent media like the uh, like this show, Justin. And people like you and I are putting out the word and making it making it happen and there's lots of people like us all over the all over the world. It's really encouraging because what we hope we can do with this show is change just a little bit of the discussion. Every every little small small part of it. We want to have real discussions about real meaningful things because even the dialogue about sustainability and the big brand takeover of sustainability where you start seeing companies like Walmart, you know, throwing the word sustainability out. It used to be that green was the word and now and that was just completely stolen and now sustainability is the word and that's completely stolen. So we're going to have to come up with something that no one can steal. But all of those issues of sustainability, when big companies are talking about sustainability and corporate social responsibility and social entrepreneurship, all these things do not address the fact that there are drug shortages all around the world, especially in Greece, where like 200 drugs are in short supply and getting headache medicine is, is difficult. There were 200 drug shortages last year in the United States that the FDA was reporting on. And I'm seeing pieces all the time of families who are like, you know, my kid has epilepsy and has seizures and the drug's running out and the hospital says they can't help us. And, you know, physical health standards are declining because in places like Detroit, homicides are up like 30, 40 percent since the start of the year. Same thing in Washington, D.C. You know, you can have all these discussions about green economy, consumer economy, solar panels on roofs and all this stuff. But unless you do it from a point that's rooted in the reality of the discussion that we're facing a massive debt deflation and all this capital that's going to be needed to pull all this stuff off and build all this shiny new infrastructure, it's not even a discussion worth having. And we can use technology, we can use social innovation and all the things that we're capable of to actually make a difference. But unless we're doing that from a point that's rooted in reality, it's not going to be a productive path to go down. And now as I drown my my sorrows in, you know, large amounts of alcohol and drugs, <laughs> well, I have well, hope. <laughs> there's a there's a shred of hope in in the in the in the world when I listen to all of our our uh, listeners write into us and, you know, write us emails and tweet to us. And Nicole is saying there are reasons for hope because she does know that decentralized initiatives can get off the ground and she does know from studying the Great Depression that if you have tangible skills, if you know how to do something that's real, you're going to be able to put food on the table. And that's really what it what it means. When I was talking about sustainability earlier, what I'm really meaning is that unless the sustainability discussion is about how to prevent everyone from slowly starving, it's not rooted in a realistic assessment of the of the current picture you know what i mean like yeah that's, i, I that's do what know what you mean it's just it's it sounds so so depressing when when you put it all out there like that you know it's like this is the reality that our world is but it's so freaking sad that we've come to this and we have so much potential and this is where humanity ends up you know 
how does it how does it get to be like that? Well, I, I don't think we've ended up here. There's still a lot more in the story of our species moving forward. We've ended up here in the current position. Well, yeah, right yeah, now, we're here we're here right now. But as we've been speaking with all these different people, it's about this failed logic that we've been using. It's about these failed assumptions of reality. And now's the time when we get to rethink all those things. And, and that's why at the end of our discussion, Nicole was talking about reasons for hope because she legitimately does have reasons for hope. And there are legitimate reasons for hope, as we've discussed with all the many guests we've had on here, you know, amazing ideas about retooling currency and the ways we interact and the ways we eat. And all those solutions are out there and they're slowly building. I had a friend tell me recently that, you know, it's been depressing to be a part of of this movement, whatever it is, for a, for a long time, because they always felt like they were one drop in the bucket. But recently, it's been encouraging because they realize now there's two drops in the bucket, so <laughs> doubled their momentum, and that's that's what it feels like. You know, uh, this this whole kind of thought process has kind of doubled its momentum, although it's gone from pretty much like zero to a little bit. Have you seen that show called Preppers? Justin? What's Preppers? Preppers is this show where people kind of prepare for economic collapse. Uh, a TV people, show? It's a reality television show where people are preparing for economic collapse. Uh, let me guess, on TLC, the learning channel? No, I think it's on National Geographic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, don't quote me on that, but I'm not. my parents were talking to me about it because, I, like I've said on some other episodes, I don't really follow television very closely and don't really follow you know news media too closely, but... They were telling me about the prepper show, and I was like, "Wow, there's there's some supposedly some guy who you know puts seeds away, another guy who has a semi truck that he's converted into like a, a rolling shelter that he's going to be able to hide around up in the mountains somewhere." Pretty interesting. The point of that is these themes are slowly making their way into mainstream culture. The hope is that the, they'll make it there fast enough so that it'll you know become mainstream by the time that we need them to be, and collecting seeds and in, in uh, you know in bunkers will be the norm and it and it's like how nicole was saying is that if you just sit on your pile of gold and seeds you're just making yourself a target and there's no better way to ensure your safety in this tumultuous time where there is so much at risk and all of our supply chains are so vulnerable than to have a group of people around you that you can trust and who care about you and that's really the important thing moving forward and so that's why we're so lucky to have so many people who are listening who care enough to download and, and email us. So thank you. Thank you. And speaking of what Nicole was saying in terms of learning how to do something meaningful, we wanted to welcome our blog editor, Luisa, onto our episode to talk about her experience in woofing. And she can tell you what that's all about. So yeah, I just got back from my most recent woofing experience because I had a little holiday between my two semesters. What is woofing? It stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms and basically it's a really cheap way to travel and a really great way to learn about different cultures. By what you do is you choose a country where you want to or are willing to volunteer on, a, on an organic farm and you pay a sort of small annual fee to be a member which gives you access to a host list and then through that you can arrange to stay on an organic farm and in exchange for working an agreed number of hours a day you get free bed and board and you pretty much just become one of the family. So did you have farming experience before? Did you know how to get out and work on a farm before you joined the woofing program? Absolutely not. I did not come from an agricultural background and to be honest I didn't even have a strong interest 
at that time in agricultural production. I actually started simply because I wanted to learn Italian and I didn't have much money. And so it was really my way to pay my way um, to stay in Italy and live with Italians and see what the culture was really like there. But I ended up falling in love with working outside. And since then, I've worked on six other farms since my first one, which I think tends to be quite common. Like I've met a lot of other travellers who start working just because they want to visit another country and then they just keep going because they love the experience. So can anybody be a woofer? Do you have to be a certain age? Not at all. I've met so many different people from like around the world, different ages. I've worked with 60 year olds, people in the mi- middle age who just like kind of want to break, want to just kind of try something different. They often take a break from work and just want something completely different, have a different experience, meet different people. Although I would say the majority of people I've worked with have been in higher education because naturally you have more time off to kind of do these things. I thought it would be more kind of people who just finished high school before going to college who had that time off, but it's becoming a big thing. I, I hear it being talked about more and more. It's becoming a more and more common way to travel, especially as people now often don't have so much money to go on expensive holidays at the moment. And before I went working, my only traveling, well, I'd had some more adventurous traveling experiences with friends, but going on holiday with family to kind of hotels and that kind of more traditional travel abroad experience. I find it really difficult now to go back to that. I find that really boring. I much prefer going <laughs> and working somewhere. <laughs> I know it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's the same way since I started uh, couch surfing, you know, staying in a hostel's great and all, but really couch surfing has taken over as my preferred method of travel. Yeah, who wants to pay for hotels when you could just work your way across Europe? And you can actually meet the people who live in those countries and go away with a real understanding of what it's like to live there. So, Louisa, tell us a little bit about some of your woofing experiences. Have you had some really interesting stories, some interesting places that you've stayed? Yes, very interesting. I'd say like every single experience has been completely different and you never know what to expect before you arrive, no matter what kind of information you get. It's always something kind of unexpected. So I've worked only in Italy and Scotland. Those are two countries, but mainly in Italy. The first year I went woofing, probably the most kind of memorable, important experience was on this most incredible farm in near Siena. It was on top of a hill and the main farmer was originally German. He was kind of an architect turned farmer. So he'd restored this medieval monastery into a kind of agritourism, which is where you, it's kind of a farm where they also have people to stay. And he had a really strong concept of food to table. So he wanted everyone who came to the farm to see how the food was produced, like meet the animals, meet the workers on the farm, and then watch how the food was made and prepared, and then enjoy the food. So that was a really important learning experience because I'd never really seen kind of connected agricultural production to the food I was eating in that way. And the characters were incredible. Like he was so inspiring. I spent that three weeks pruning olive trees and the way he described it to us was like kind of like an art form, which I never really imagined farming to be so creative. And everyone kind of associates farming with manual labor and like peasants, but it's the most, it's kind of a lot more to it than that. So the nature of the work was very different from your expectations? I kind of just thought I'd just get on with it, do some boring manual labor, like 
shifts and rocks and then the rest of the time would be great but actually it was the work itself which was really interesting and I've met the most like, incredible people in that farm his mother was this really inspiring old lady who had more energy than all the rest of us put together and she lived through the end of World War II in East Germany and um, she was from quite a wealthy landowning family and she'd been there when the communist Russian soldiers had come in and she had to like flee from East Germany over the Berlin Wall and pretty much start from scratch so she had a real love of life which was really inspiring. What was your most recent woofing experience like? It's actually a medieval castle. So you get to stay in a castle and, and be a woofer? Yeah. Oh. Woofing can take you to some incredible places that you would never normally probably be, afford to be able to stay in. Incredible, incredible, really well-restored castle <laughs> um, in Grosseto, which is in Tuscany. And they make their own wine from three different grapes and their own olive oil, which is delicious and really high quality, which we, used, we got to eat every single meal, eat and drink. And it's kind of winter work at the moment. So we were mainly in the, in the vineyards, like tearing off old vines and cutting up logs. So you have fabulous dinners on the castle with the moonlight <laughs> shining down on you? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, we had incredible dinners in their wow. like high ceilinged castle kitchen. <laughs> it was beautiful. They had this incredible like big Great Dane dogs, just as beautiful creatures wandering around. And then Sally, the mother, would just like sort of appear. She's, she's a real classic English woman. She'd appear in her eccentric hats, just sort of wandering around in fancy dress. It was, it was pretty fantastical. Wow. That sounds amazing. And so yeah, it does. if some of our listeners are thinking of woofing themselves, how can they yeah. get started and how can they get into woofing? Um, well, first of all, you probably have to decide what country you want to go to. And honestly, almost every country from like Sierra Leone to Scotland does woofing. So there's an area you particularly want to travel to where you really want to get to know the people who live there and learn more about the culture, then just look up woof and search that country and they will probably have their own website in which you can find out more information. Or if you just want to know a bit more about woofing in general, you can go to their website, which I think is www.oof.org. And from there, you can get links to all the countries where you can woof. So do you have any tips for people who are looking to become woofers? Is there anything that you would tell people to do or not to do? The main thing is just to go into it with an open mind and you have to be willing to give yourself up to that community, that farm you go into and just be open to being part of that, whatever role they give you in the family and be open to meeting new people, doing new things, just say yes to everything and you'll learn so much and have a great time. Even if you don't think, see yourself as kind of someone who'd naturally enjoy agricultural work. A lot of people um, might associate with things with migrant work or people might see it as farmers who need free labour. But the whole point of working is that it's an exchange. And from my experience, it always really has been a cultural exchange and you are taken in as one of the family. And you get a lot from the family in terms of they're really interested in you and you learn, they want to teach you new skills and... They'll take the time to do that and you'll often be taken out with the family and basically do what they do. So it's very different from being a kind of paid worker on a farm. Louisa, while we have you on the line, do you want to talk a little bit about what your vision for the Extra Environmentalist blog is and what your work has been so far on the blog? So far, the articles have been covering like a broad range of social and economic issues. I think the difference about our articles compared to kind of the mainstream media is that they tend to cover quite broad issues and take something con a contemporary issue and look at the historical context and then look at predictions for the future. So we've done an article about new media, higher education. If someone is out there and is interested in contributing to the blog, they can 
get in touch with you and you will edit them up to make their words read very well? Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Um, it'd be great to get some more contributions, some more new contributors, to get as many like different perspectives as we can from all around the world, from any background. If you want to talk about something your society is doing, how they're coping with economic difficulties or how they're being creative or kind of going against corporate structures. If somebody sends you like a video or some photos, will you work that into a post perhaps or you know, work with them to make a post really, really nice or... Yeah, that'd be great. If someone has an idea and they can bring it to me and then we can work together to put um, to make it into a post for the blog. Cool. That All sounds right. excellent. So thanks, Louisa, for sharing that story with us. And you can hear more from Louisa on our Extra Environmentalist blog, which is www.extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog. If you like this episode and want to hear more, we have a whole lot of extra episodes in our archive that you can go on and download. Can, you can reach us on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. You can even leave us a voicemail message at our online voicemail message box. You can find us on Skype. And we're on the radio in Canada. That's right. We air every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. Pacific time on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. But if you are an international listener, you can tune in to CITR.ca to listen. And you never know what you're going to get. There's different stuff that is not on the podcast Sometimes interviews with local people. Sometimes we have a preview of a podcast episode before we put it out so you can hear all kinds of stuff. So thanks thanks to Angelina from Hamilton, Australia for sending us a donation and sending us a note to say that she really appreciated our interview with Michael on Technofix. And so we're really glad it resonated with you and all the other people that we, we heard from about that episode. And so your donation is going to go with all the other donations we get right back into the show to buy better equipment, buy better storage, do all kinds of awesome things to help increase our distribution and keep the show getting better and better. Uh, Angelina will be receiving our bonus content, which is reserved for those people who donate to the show. So really enjoy that. And it's going to be some really excellent, excellent stuff. Hello, you there. Yes, you come closer. Closer. Yes. Hello, I'm Baxter, the editing troll. You don't hear from me too often because I'm usually stuck in the studio where I spend hours upon hours editing these podcasts. I don't get out much because the computer screen takes up my whole life. My mouse has grown into my hand and my eyeballs have become computer monitors. It's a tough life that I live, but I do it for the extra environmentalist. But you know what? A little help from the listeners of the extra environmentalist would go a long, long way. We need people to help transcribe this audio. We need people that would love to tweet for us and to Facebook and to blog. Baxter! Baxter, get back to your computer screen. Oh, no. This is not acceptable. You're not allowed to speak into the microphone. The masters are calling again. I better go. Oh! Oh! Let us know if you want to help. Email the show at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. Oh, my goodness. You guys just got a behind-the-scenes look at the action environmentalists that we don't really want you to see. But yeah, uh, I'm I'm not sure. Um, we, we do use troll labor. Um, I'm not sure how that got in there. So yeah, I don't. I I don't think we're going to talk about that anymore. Yeah, but and, if, anyway, uh, yeah. If anyone does want to help us with transcripts or with joining our Twitter team or anything like that, you let us know. 
and shoot us an email and we can make sure that good things happen as opposed to troll labor. That's right. If you have uh, a large Twitter following and or just really want to be a blog poster or, you know, really have a message that you feel is important that would really help the extra environmentalist, we want to hear from you because we, we would really like to have some extra help. It, it would make the show better. And yeah, if, if we had just a few people helping, we could have a show out every week eventually you, because you imagine that yeah we have that many uh interviews that we could potentially schedule we just space them out more but you just anyway, hear us talking constantly yeah. we now have a soundcloud page and we mention our voicemail inboxes that people can reach us by phone or by skype and you can find that on the site but now if you want to reach out to us through soundcloud you can do that and if you go to our site at extraenvironmentalist.com on the right hand sidebar you can see the soundcloud dropbox and so if you have a song that you want us to use on the episode if you want to record a greeting right there on the dropbox you can just click the record button speak into your microphone and your comments can get added in to a future episode. Your stories can get edited down by us, included in a future episode. Or your funny voices can get incorporated into whatever it is that our troll slave labor can handle. Did you just say troll slave labor, Justin? I was no. Um, I don't know how that got in there. Yeah. I need to make sure that I pay more attention to the final cuts of these things. That's right. A few other little things also on the site. We've updated our questions page. So on the right-hand sidebar, you can see a link for questions for future guests. We've got uh, interviews that we have scheduled for April and, and May on there. So you can see some of the people we're interviewing and throw us some questions that you might want to ask them. That's all through Google Moderator. And also, I am hitting the road. I will be in Washington, D.C., New York, and North Carolina coming up. Woo! Yeah, to visit Seth, uh, going by train, quite possibly, to Raleigh, to visit Seth and to say hello to people on the East Coast. So if you are in one of those cities and you'd like to grab a drink, you just let me know, shoot us an email, and we will work something out. Maybe if there's enough listeners in the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area, we can have a night at the Flying Saucer or some bar there in, in Raleigh. I don't even get to see Justin. You'll get to see both of us at the same time. It's amazing. And, and the same goes out to our Washington, D.C. and New York City listeners. And so I'm going to be in New York City, Washington, D.C. and North Carolina the last few days of March and in early April. So if you're around in that time frame, let me know. So to all of our listeners out there who are flying the flag high and, and knitting like demons, keep up your chess game and try not to drop stitches. must have security, physical security, that is food, clothes and shelter are absolutely necessary.
not only for the Americans, for the whole humanity. Yes, of course. And it's no good saying we are secure and to help with the rest of the world. The world is you. Yes. And the, you are the world. Mm -hmm. You can't be isolate yourself and say, I'm going to be secure and not bother about the others. Secure myself against them. Against them. It becomes a division, <laughs> conflict, war, yes. all that produce. Physical security is necessary for the brain. The brain can only function, as I have observed it in myself, in others, only in complete security. Then it functions efficiently, healthily, not neurotically, and its actions won't be uh, lopsided, that security is denied when we separate ourselves. The Americans, the Russians, the Indians, the Chinese, the national division has destroyed that security. Right. And yet we don't see that. Sovereign governments with their armies, with their navies and all the rest of it, is destroying security. In the name of whatever. <laughs> Providing it. Yeah. Yes. So, mm -hmm. you see, what, I'm what we're trying to get at is how stupid the mind is. It wants security, and it must have security. And yet it's doing everything to destroy that security. And the factor of security is in jobs. My, either in a factory, in a business, or as a priest in his job. So. Occupation becomes very important. If I lose uh, my job, I'm frightened. And that job depends on the environment, on the, on the production, business, factory, all that commercialism, consumerism, and therefore competition with other countries. We need physical security, and we are doing everything to destroy. If we all of us said, look, let's all get together, hmm? Not with plans, not my plan, your plan, or the communist plan, or the Mao plan. Let's, as human beings, sit together and solve this problem. They could do it. Science has the means of feeding people. But they won't, because they are conditioned to function so as to destroy security which they are seeking.
Now, when you have a downturn like this, caused by excessive debt levels, that particular source of investment disappears. So you know you only have a, a tiny amount of investment being undertaken by people deciding to buy shares rather than consuming. But you don't get the growth in investment coming out of growing bank debt, which finances productive investment. So in that situation, your economy grows more slowly, innovation slows down. Uh, one instance we know well historically, of course, is the television was invented in the 1920s and only became a consumer product in the 90, late 1940s because the depression intervened before it could be sold. So in that particular case, innovation was slowed down by two decades by depression. So we'll see a similar thing here. And what that means is you'll have a slower rate of growth than the economy would normally achieve. And that therefore means you're likely to have very persistent high unemployment and also people being depressed further by falling asset prices, which of course is what's been happening in Japan now for two decades. Big things popping and little things hopping as we jump into March Madness. Greece is getting ready to experience a slam dunk as it struggles to limp into the fourth quarter. As housing markets continue to flounder, what will the austerity brackets bring? This is Collapse Center. This is Collapse Center. Welcome to Collapse Center. This is your host, Howard you doing along with your co-host write me off and it's great to be here to talk about everything that's been happening in the last week of epic plays in the collapse of the global economy what do you say about that right that's right howard we've been having a crazy time these austerity brackets have just been exploding i can't even wait we've got some big announcements coming down we're about to jump right into the the big march madness that we've been waiting for all year long we're going to take you through the potential for all four quarters that'll bring a lot more than just change the four quarters you wish you had in your pockets Tonight's financial breakdowns brought to you by Madoff. He's Bernie, and he's Madoff with your cash. So let's jump right into the financial breakdown. We go live to our reporter in the field, Jackie Pataki, who will tell us what's going on with the austerity brackets in Greece. I'm reporting live from the locker room here in Greece, and it looks like this team is willing to bring whatever it takes to make sure they advance to the next round of the austerity bracket. It looks like they're putting in a lot of default plays that they can draw upon in case of an emergency. I'm gonna take a look at the plays the coach is drawing up here on his clipboard. It looks like he's drawing X's and O's for the play. It looks like he's just drawing O's. It looks like he's just writing out the paychecks for all of his players. Looks like a pretty grim play here, guys. Back to you in the studio, Howard. And right. Thanks, Jackie. Always great to hear our live reports from the field. We go to Howard. Howard, tell us what's going on in the housing market in Canada. That's right, right? We're facing unbelievable inflation here in the housing market. It's like everyone goes up and up and up to go for the layup, and then it turns out that it's a layoff. 
It's a real air ball kind of game over here. When is the bubble going to burst? Well, I think what they're going for is the full court press. They're going to turn this into something for the judges to sort out. Now it's time for the top three roundup. That's right. It's your top three plays in collapse this week. Number three on the list. We're going to take it right to the university campuses for this one, guys. That's right, right. In the universities in Athens, these are the places where Plato taught and Cicero studied. As I would know, being an expert on Greek philosophy, there's a lot of campuses that are covered in graffiti. The stray dogs are running through the buildings, and students are taking lessons in other languages just to learn the language of the place that they plan to escape to. Exactly. I can't wait to be on those university campuses when this full court press goes into effect. It's going to be mind-boggling. Number two. It seems that basketball hoops are in jeopardy as more and more people looking for metal are taking down basketball hoops all over the neighborhood. No basketball hoop is safe. That's right, right? All kinds of people are coming at those basketball hoops and sawing them down in order to get the metal in them. That is a big play for a big man. Number one is Greece. I don't know what's going on. That's right, right. Last week, Greece defaulted, becoming the first sovereign nation to default on its debt in the modern era since Argentina and Russia did it. Unbelievable play. A lot of people maybe said they were seeing it coming. We heard official rumors denied for the longest time, but they did it. They took the bankers. They said, we're not paying you back. We're making our play. We're going for it. We're going out, and we're getting a haircut. And you are footing the bill for that salon. Stay tuned after the break when we start talking about the number one seed for the austerity bracket breakdown. They got to plant seeds somewhere, folks, because they're running out of food. 